throughout most of our life, medical treatments decisions have been quite simple. We get sick, the doctor prescribes a treatment. Since we can only benefit from the physician's orders, we follow the treatment plan and return to our previous state of health. But the way modern medicine has prolonged lives today, my guest today says today's generations are the first to be faced with making such difficult choices about potentially life-prolonging medical treatments. Find out why it's become so hard to make the hard choices on this episode of the Executor Help Podcast. This is the Executor Help Podcast. Learn how to settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, go to davidedy.com. Now here's your host, David Eady. With me today is Hank Dunn, who is an ordained healthcare chaplain who, during his career over over 30 years, has helped countless patients and their families navigate healthcare decisions during serious illness. He's also a nationally renowned speaker on the topics of healthcare, end-of-life decision-making, and spirituality. And he's also the author of Hard Choice for Loving People. Hank, I really want to thank you for being here and taking the time to have this conversation. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been a chaplain for a long time, and you've witnessed the way modern medicine has you know, gone, along, gone, gone ahead to prolong lives. But you say that today's uh, generations are faced with making some really tough decisions, potentially life-prolonging medical treatments. Why do you believe it's become so hard? In previous generations, death came. There wasn't much to do to prolong the life cure people. Antibiotics is a big one that has come up. It was mostly in the 1950s that we had antibiotics because most people had died from uh, infections prior to that. So now we have like ventilators and families and patients are faced with maybe take mom off the ventilator, let her die peacefully, feeding tubes. Although I had a um, a doc, he was um a, a patient at the nursing home where I was, and he would have been in the med school like in the 1930s. And I asked him one time, it says, feeding tubes, have they been around? He said, oh, yeah, we had feeding tubes in the 1930s. Feeding tubes have been around. He said the big change is antibiotics because you get a lot of infections with feeding tubes, and now we can clear it up with antibiotics. So that's what makes it difficult now as you make a decision to withhold or withdraw treatment, like no CPR, no feeding tubes, take them off a ventilator, that type of thing. And I think emotionally, a lot of times people feel like, oh, I'm killing mom. I'm taking her off the feeding tube or I'm killing mom. We're not going to do CPR. And I think it's horrible to put families in that situation to think they're killing somebody when they're just allowing a natural death to to occur so i think this is why it's so hard now is there's so many decisions that can be made to prolong a life sometimes it's it's better just to let them die peacefully yeah i i I fully uh, agree because we know we were put in the situation with my mom and you know being on that on the floor um you can hear people in the hallways having conversations you can hear screams it's 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 a it's a tough time for a family to make those decisions now you say there's every family when they're put in that situation they're going to be faced with probably four common decisions what are they the most common uh decisions you have to make is number one is about cpr cardiopulmonary resuscitation it was developed really in the 1950s and 60s it's been around for a while basically you, you do ch- chest compressions, and nowadays they don't say you have to do the 
mouth to mouth breathing, um, just chest compressions is the most important thing. Of course, if you're in the hospital, they have medications they can shoot you up with and all other kind, other kind of things they can do for you. But basically, a doc would have a conversation with a patient or a family if the patient can't decide for themselves. Do you want us to attempt to resuscitate your mother? And we know there are several categories of patients who will not survive. Those would be your people with a terminal illness, people who cannot live independently, and people who have multiple medical problems will not survive. I mean, it's the survival rates in like a zero to two percent range. At best, in the hospital, only about fifteen percent people survive CPR. So it's pretty low survival rate. And so when you have all these other problems, we just know it's not going to survive. So I always, of course, I'm a chaplain and I think about spiritual things, but Mm -hmm. I think if somebody says, yeah, we want you to do CPR on our mom and mom is frail, she's 90 years old, she's going to have broken ribs. And I say, say, this is such an unusual decision. Tell me more about what's going on. So, well, I just just don't want to lose mom. She's my best friend or something like that. It has nothing to do with the medical side of it. It's an emotional decision. So um, CPR can be a very emotional thing because you feel like you're killing the patient or letting them die and you really don't i like to say it's it's like a death and death decision Uh, they're going to die whether you do cpr or not and it's not a life and death decision the second big one that people have to deal with is feeding tubes feeding tubes as i've mentioned they've been around for a long time they get put into people uh let's say a stroke patient who can't swallow anymore might end up with a feeding tube Although fortunately, it's happening less now, but uh, advanced dementia patients, feeding difficulties or typical advanced Alzheimer's, for example, um, and sometimes those patients get a feeding tube. Uh, Feeding tubes can be just temporary. Again, that stroke patient who gets a feeding tube uh, maybe eventually can learn to swallow again and the tube is pulled and they don't have to have, have that anymore. But others end up maybe for years. I have in my files the story of uh, Rita Green, who was on a feeding tube for like 27 years in a vegetative state. You know, uh, in the U.S., we had a couple of famous cases, Karen Quinlan case. She was on a ventilator in the family. This in 1976, decided to take her off the vent. But she lived, and she was on a feeding tube for another 10 years. The family didn't even consider taking her off the feeding tube. Um, But anyway, long story short, people can live in a vegetative state for a long time on a feeding tube. So a lot of families might make the choice to withdraw or withhold, not even put them in the first first place. The third big decision is about hospitalization. Uh, Just recently here in the U.S., we we learned that uh, former President Jimmy Carter has gone into hospice. And the announcement from the Carter Center, they said he had gone through a number of hospitalizations recently and the family decided or he decided to go home under hospice care. So this happens typically at the end of life. You go back and forth to the hospital and finally the patient or the family says, no more. We're not going to do this anymore. And so uh, that might be a decision you have to make not to go to the hospital. The last decision of the four most common ones, when to enter hospice or palliative care, when to shift from trying to cure everything that's coming along to just keeping the patient comfortable. 
So, and that can be a very emotional decision and spiritual decision too, because a lot of people interpret hospice as, oh, I'm dying. Well, yeah, that's what hospice is all about. Yeah. In the U.S., we you, the hospice benefit, you have to be within six months of dying and for the doc to be able to say you can go under hospice care. So it feels like oh, I'm, I'm dying. And, and I, at my years as a hospice chaplain, we would get people come into hospice and they, they really hadn't accepted the, the, that they're dying, but they wanted the hospice benefits. Right. So there was a lot of work to do um, with them on end of life stuff, even though uh, I mistakenly believed years ago that uh, all hospice patients were all ready to die. And that is not true at all. Mm -hmm. Those are the four big ones um, that most people have to face. Other, there'll be others, uh, maybe be on a ventilator or not, uh, use of antibiotics or not, dialysis, defibrillators, implanted defibrillators, turning those things off, things like that. There, there are other ones that are out there, but those, those four are the main ones. Yeah. You know, all of those things you 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 mentioned, and, and, and there's even more, and these are really tough decisions they're hard choices where do you where do you see that families have the struggles and do you have a story that you can share remember a, a couple cases good way a family done it in a bad way one of the, we had a patient come to the nursing home years ago and she had had a fall she was a pretty healthy 82 year old and fell down the stairs at her daughter's house in virginia where i was working in the nursing home and through she got into our nursing home for rehab and she just on a feeding tube she was not responsible well, minimally responsible they were able to get her up to do pt but she just couldn't rehab the they would be just dragging her around the the pt room she had three daughters and a son and the daughters were mom would like this she always says she didn't want to be in a nursing home and we think we should just stop the feeding tube let her die well the son said no 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 we gotta we gotta rehab mom so he actually flew out to virginia and, and he, i remember one time seeing him he kind of dragging his mom around trying to get her feet to work and they would not and after a month or so he came along he said you know you're right she this is she's not rehabbing so they stopped the feeding tube and she died actually a couple of weeks later another family uh, a patient came to us and she was demented. She was, but she had made a durable power of attorney for health care. She had a son and a daughter, adult son and daughter. And she had assigned her son to be the power of attorney and totally left her daughter out of the whole thing. Mm. And I, talking to him, I realized why the daughter wanted to do everything to keep her mom alive, feeding tubes, CPR, you know, a hospitalization and, and she had given strict instructions to her son. No, you let me, it's my time. You let me go. And now fortunately how that one ended, even the daughter finally came along as the mother was dying to realize we're not going to be able to save her life. And this is how it, most of these stories have good endings. And, and it's because the patient begins to fail so much that everybody can get on the same page. Not always, but most of the time I, I have found it. Even like I said, this one where the son, uh, the mother had assigned the son, the power of attorney, the daughter eventually did come along. It took a while though.
Yeah, it, it, when you, I guess it would be for every family is that when they're faced with these choices, it, there's going to be some people that are just going to accept, you know, this is the inevitable. And then there's going to be those who say, no, if we try one more thing, maybe this is the thing. They, they, they're probably one of the last to give up hope. And then at some sure. point, then it's, you know, there's there's nothing we can do to go along. And, and it, I think it comes down to the conversations and we'll talk a little bit more about living wills in a second, but is that the catalyst of what made you want to write the book, uh, hard choices for loving, for loving people? I actually, I was, became a nursing home chaplain in 1983 and that same year in Virginia, they passed a natural death act and our nursing home said, okay, what, what are we going to do about this? If Virginians have a right to an advanced directive and a right to refuse treatment. And so the nursing home basically, we're going to tell everybody about this. And so Hank, we want you to do that. So I started talking to these patients that were competent and the families of those who were not and about CPR, feeding tubes, the whole nine yards and about Living wills, advanced directives, and durable power of return for healthcare. Anyway, I was tell, saying the same thing over and over and over again. So I thought, well, why don't we just put this in a booklet? And we did. Uh, and the first edition was 1990. And, and we, I wrote it just for the patients and families at the nursing home where I was working. And just as an afterthought, we sent it out to 100 other nursing homes in Virginia. And out of that 100 we sent out, we sold about 4,000 copies. So yeah. long story short, we started um, marketing it nationally, and I, I formed my own publishing company in uh, 1993, and just was, uh, it just, I uh, sold it by the boatloads, and, and it, we've sold over 4 million copies of it wow. now, yeah. and so it grew out of me talking to these families and wanting to have it in writing, because a lot of families as i'm sure it's, it's typical in canada wherever you are nowadays families often are spread out and so you have mom in the nursing home in virginia and the daughter is there but the son is in dallas and the and, and the other daughter is in montreal and you know so all that's to say is putting it in writing and then they family could send it out the booklet to other family members it, it really helped so that was the impetus behind it and uh it grew from uh just started out having a chapter on cpr a chapter on feeding tubes and then i expanded to another chapter on hospice and palliative care and uh then i added a section on hospitalization and these other things so it grew from i think it was like 28 pages the first book to it's now 84 pages but uh it's still brief it's still easy to get through uh people you can just read the part you're interested in and then leave the rest yeah it's it's it pretty much covers everything that people would need to know depending on their specific situation with over you know four million copies sold clearly people are looking for information because this is not something that you know, they're going to come across every day. And is it because they want to really understand what's going on with their with their loved one and, you know, understand the options that's available to them so that you're helping them make that, you know, that, that you know, the name of the book, the hard choices for that loving, for the loving people, for the person in your life that you're trying to do. I don't know, is it to save or is it to prolong or is it to 
let them go easy, easy. Oh, that's a that's a great way to put it because that's what people struggle with. Are we prolonging life or prolonging death? I mean, really, you know, you you can put somebody on a ventilator and and uh, they can live for hours, months, days, whatever. But are you just prolonging the inevitable? And so it's not an exact science. I mean, docs don't know a lot of times. They'll they'll say, we think your mom has, you know, two months to live and she lives for two years or she dies in a week. So um, like my mother, all, all that's like my mother, we were giving, you know, fine. We got her in the hospital. They, you know, first we got to get over the shock. She has cancer. They say, well, you know, with surgery, um, you know, she's probably got six to eight months, maybe a year. And she didn't want she didn't want to go through with it. You know, we and then we, you know, came to the conclusion consensus that, well, you know, whatever you decide to do, mom, it'll be OK. It's going to be hard because, you know, we don't want to, to for you to suffer. And then I don't know, might have been a day later. She said, you know, what? I think I'm going to do the surgery. She goes down into the surgery. They open her up and they said they can't. It's already spread. And she and she was gone within a week. So wow. it's like you're saying it's not an exact <clears throat> science. Um, doctors can only give you some guidelines. What, what are the right choices? What do you what can you do? Because you don't want to lose this person, but you don't want you don't want <clears throat> to see them suffer as well, because, you know, even if they are on the feeding tube for, you know, six months to a year, that's six months to a year that your your life is put on hold because you want to be with them because you don't know when it's going to be the last time that you're going to be one so now your life is on hold you're spending your time at the hospital it's going to it's going to affect your mental health it's it's that's why i think your book is so great is that it gives some comfort to to families to make decisions and yes it's hard but what there is no right answer what do you you need to come to a consensus understand have all the facts make a decision one of the things you touched on there is um, I, I think docs, they're basically optimists. And actually, that's good. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can save your life. I can do. And I kind of sometimes want to hear that from a doc. But um, they're notorious for overstating how long or how well a person can live. I mean, there's a lot of research on this. So so you have to do a little digging. And that's what I think my book has done is I, I put the research in there too. This piece about CPR not working for these three types of patients I mentioned, the terminally ill, the multiple diagnosed, and the those who can't live independently. That's an important piece of information. And usually when you share that with patients and families, that they're in this category of patients who don't survive CPR, well, then they say, oh, of course, don't do it. So, but if a doc just says, do you want us to resuscitate your mother or let her die? Well, it seems like I'm making the choice of whether she's going to die or not. And, when it, and the reality is she's going to die anyway. So I, I think people are having to, uh, what am I, my book? did and hopefully if docs do a good job is tell the reality of the situation that they are not likely to survive the cpr or the feeding tube or the ventilator or whatever else you might be thinking about doing and so this i think and this is one thing i've heard a, a compliments about my book is that explain it explains it very well for the lay person to understand what these decisions are 
it's it, it, you're you're triggering me because you know I I'm I can see myself and uh, my siblings were sitting there at the table and my doc and the doctor explained to me my mother has cancer and everything just seemed to stop wow. time because yeah. now, now now we're in a in a sort of a, a rabbit hole we're, we're just going down where are we going from there now because you don't know what's the next step what do we that sort of thing and that's the shock that's where you and 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 once we like i, I said before once i had you know we heard it it wasn't uncommon on the floor to hear screams in the hallway, to hear people being told, you know, someone had passed away or something like that. It's it's a it's a feeling you, you nobody can be prepared for. And, and I know from all of the experience that you had and the observations when um, families got to make decisions that they can all agree on. Have you got another story where maybe a family couldn't get on the same page? You know, I, I love I'm hesitating because generally they do get on the same page eventually. It mm -hmm. takes time. And just as I indicated with those other two stories I told, all these people eventually got on the same page, uh, which was withholding or withdrawing treatment. Once they see the decline in the patient, this was interesting during COVID. One of the things that happened <clears throat> with end of life decisions when families were not allowed to visit patients in the hospital, they couldn't really look at them and see how they're struggling mm -hmm. to make to make a decision you know the, the bless their hearts the hospital staff did their best of holding up a, a phone for a, a facetime or an ipad or whatever and so that made it kind of hard it tends to be harder <laughs> we we had a a, a a patient at the nursing home one time who's uh, had a son there in virginia and another son out in california and the son in california he, he made a phone call once a year on his mother's birthday. That's how involved he was to, yeah. with his mother. The other son was there regular, but the son in, Cal in uh, Arizona, wherever he was, he said uh, he wanted everything done to keep mom alive. Well, the son in Virginia said, no, don't do anything. And the doc, she was great. She, uh, I, I've suggested to the doc, why don't we, I can call an ethics committee and we can tell the son in Arizona that the ethics committee says she should have a do not resuscitate order. And the doc says, don't you dare <laughs> to do that. <laughs> she says, I've talked with the son. I've talked with the staff. We're not going to do a CPR, but we're not putting the order on the chart, which is an interesting thing the way this and bless her heart. That's the way it happened. She died. There was no CPR. They called the son in Arizona. Mama's died and he was just fine with it. And uh, no, like, well, did you do CPR? Did you take her to the hospital? Nah. And so it never, technically it never resolved. They never resolved the fall, but the, the, but the nurse, the doctor working with the nurses and the nursing home were able to, to, to find a, a way around this and, and, the lady died peacefully, and it was it, 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 maybe you. If the son had really cared about it, he could have uh, the one in Arizona. He could have said, "I'm going to sue you guys for not trying CPR." There is an exception, by the way, on CPR. <clears throat> if there is an unwitnessed arrest, in other words, if there's not a medical person in the room when the lady takes her last breath. You're not obligated to start CPR. And that's basically what the nursing home did. Right. They check on the lady every once in a while, but then they would go about all their other work. 
and they just came in and found she had died. And there's no there's no ethical, legal, or medical obligation to start CPR on a dead person. So you, that's how that that one was resolved. It's funny you said that at over some time everybody gets on the same page. But you know what? In these situations, time is is of the essence. You need to make decisions. You know, that the son in Arizona, clearly he was making it about him. He, if he was really involved in his mom, his mom's well-being, you know, he would jump on a plane and, and, you know, be right there by her side, you know, trying to make decisions from afar and thinking, oh, mom's got time. Just give her, you know, do whatever. You, she'll be fine. That That's on him. And, you know, he needs to he, he has to live with that. How is his his uh, mom left this earth and, you know, he didn't have, maybe he didn't get to say what he wanted to say. How important is time? when it comes to making these decisions. Yes, time is a factor when families must make hard choices. In part two of my conversation with Hank Dunn, you're gonna learn from a moral, ethical, medical, and most religious viewpoints why there's no difference between withholding and withdrawing. But emotionally, there's a world of difference. And what questions should families ask to help make those tough decisions? All this and more on the next episode of the Executor Help Podcast, Hard Choices for Loving People. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To catch up with all the latest from me, go to davideady.com. There you can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time.